0: Bible open at Mark chapter 14. We've got a bit of courtroom drama this evening and courtyard drama as Jesus and Peter are on trial. Now this morning we, we were considering verses 43 to 52 and we had those three scenes where uh, we were disturbed by Judas's betrayal of uh, Jesus. One of his closest friends and companions betrayed Jesus with that act and symbol of love to fulfill a mission of hate we were dumbfounded weren't we at the response of jesus to his arrest he rebuked peter told him to put his sword away he healed uh, his enemy and he allowed them to seize him because he was committed to his mission of love and we were deeply disappointed weren't we at the end with the disciples desertion when the going got tough they all got going Well, this evening the heat gets turned up a little more and it's both on Jesus and on Peter who are on trial. But what we're going to see is that under the heat, Jesus' love shines all the more brighter, burns all the more stronger. But sadly, Peter's faithfulness melts. And so we're going to be thinking about this this section of of Mark 14 in two sections. First, Jesus' courtroom trial and then Peter's courtyard trial. If you've ever done any study in Mark's gospel, you, you might know that one of Mark's favorite devices is something called a Marking sandwich. So he starts with one story, and then he gets, goes, moves on to another story, the meat of it, and then he returns to the story that he started with. So there's a sense in which Mark starts with Peter, and then he goes on to the trial of Jesus, and then he returns to the trial of Peter, And he does this because there is a sharp contrast between these two trials. Jesus stands before the most authoritative religious court of the day, the Sanhedrin, whereas Peter stands trial before a mere servant girl and some other inconsequential bystanders. Jesus stood silent before his accusers, but was very sure of who he was, whereas Peter will not stop talking before his accusers, and in the process chooses to forget who he is and who it is he follows. And we'll see that even though in Mark's gospel Peter has claimed to be strong, he is actually pathetically weak in the face of pitiful opposition, whereas Jesus will show himself to be gloriously strong as he confesses who he is. In other words, we'll see that Peter fails his trial. And Jesus is victorious. But one of the most amazing things about the, the sharp contrast that's on display here is that, is that we are going to get the opportunity to see Christ's love pitted against Peter's failure. It's a beautiful picture of grace. So, you know how sometimes you go, you go to the, a play or a drama and, and what they do in the stages, they, they have two scenes on, the, on either side. And then they dim the lights on one side and they up the lights on our side so that you can focus on the background decor, you know where you are. And then in one move scene, the they dim the lights on that side and up the lights on our side. That's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to go from the courtyard to the inner chamber of um, Caiaphas' house and then we're going to go back to the courtyard and we'll dim the lights and we'll up the lights when appropriate. So just look then at verses 53 and 54. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. In these two opening verses, Mark really just wants to set the scene. Two separate but connected scenes. We have the trial of Jesus, we have the trial of Peter. And before we dim the lights on Peter, just notice what Mark draws our attention to. He was following Jesus at a distance. It's interesting, he's just deserted Jesus, he just fled from Jesus, but now he's he's found Jesus. But he's at a distance. But again, I, I want to say something I said this morning. Peter did say, Jesus, I'll never deny you, I'll never disown you i'll die for you and he tried to to stand to live up to those words when he struck malchus's ear but he failed and now it's like he's trying again to stay stay in view of jesus he wants to be with jesus but there's no distance between them both relationally and geographically physically he's not with jesus and that, in many ways, is going to capture what goes on in this passage. Peter is always going further and further away from Jesus and what he does and what he says. Now, I like to think of stories, uh, these narratives, and I'm thinking of those. So just think about Peter right here. He, we're told in verses 53 and uh, 54 that this large, burly, Galilean fisherman, he enters into the courtyard and he huddles up Which with the henchmen of the high priests, the servants, the girls and the boys who who serve the high priest's household. And it's still a dark night. It's probably just before sunset. And it's cold. And that darkness and that coldness is going to be lived out in Peter's experience. And just before we dim the lights on Peter, I read this in a commentary just this afternoon. Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. He's now at a distance. He's now safely observing Christ from the fireside in the courtyard. I wonder, do we ever forsake costly discipleship for safe observation? Do we have our social distance from Jesus? I've got a friend, a minister, and he once told me this story, and it's one of those stories that just wow. He um, he met a a partner in a law firm in the city. He's a minister in, and it turned out that the law firm had three men in it who were members of his church. One of which was an elder. And when he got chanted to his partner, he said to them, oh, I do have three guys that work for, work in your, your firm. He said, oh, who's that? And he listed them. And he said, how do you know them? He says, well, I'm their minister. And in that moment, there was this look of shock over the guy's face. He's like, hold on a minute. Like, I know Chris, like, he, he, he tells everybody he goes to church on Sunday and just, he's just a lovely man. But I am completely shocked that you just told me that John or James are Christians and they go to church. He said, what do you mean? He says, well, their words, their actions, they don't communicate. They're Christians at all. And my friend who's a minister, in many ways, it broke his heart. These are two members of his churches, and here was their boss or one of the guys that was responsible for them saying they weren't living like Christians. I remember hearing that and thinking... I wonder what would be said of me by people who work close to me and you just feel that instant would, would, would people know that I'm a Christian that I love the Lord Jesus that my allegiance is with him of, a, of or have I settled for socially distancing myself from Jesus through the week because it's easier just to connect with Jesus from safe observation on a Sunday and then Monday through Saturday live at distance from well that's what Peter was doing and it stands as a warning to us. Well, let's dim the lights on Peter and let's turn the lights up on the other side of the stage. And let's go into the inner chamber. Let's go into the inner chamber of Caiaphas' house, the high priest's home. And here we have the courtroom trial. Now, as I said, it's the dead of night. It's probably 4 a.m. We've been told in verse 53 that all of the religious leaders have gathered, meaning this is now the, the Sanhedrin that Jesus is before and they finally got him. They finally got him before him. From Mark chapter three, they've been conspiring and plotting Jesus' downfall and now he's standing before them and they, and they want to pin something on him that's worthy of death. And so here begins this trial. In many ways, it's a kangaroo court. It's an absolute mess because as soon as this trial gets going, we see that there are so many glaring issues. You see, in Jewish law, there was so many things written down about how one would conduct a trial. And and remember, these men, these religious leaders, they were scriptless about keeping the law. But when Jesus is standing before them, the rule book goes out the window. Like almost every detail of this trial violates the Jewish rules. So trials were not supposed to be conducted in the middle of the night, but this one was. A trial could not be held on the eve of a feast or a Sabbath, yet this one was. If a criminal was convicted of a capital crime, the Sanhedrin was supposed to meet again on the following day to confirm their judgment so that it would prevent rash judgment. But this was not done in Jesus' case. They short-circuited the procedure, contravened their own laws, all in order to expedite the execution of Jesus. They were desperate to put him to death. Now, as soon as they get going, things don't go according to plan. Just look down at uh, verse 54. Uh, Verse 55, rather. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but none, but they found none. So as soon as they get going, they want testimony against Jesus, but they can't get any. Now it's the middle of the night. So you can imagine men scurrying out and trying to find witnesses who they could get to give testimony and give evidence against Jesus. And so what do we read in the next verse? For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Even with all their planning, their plotting, even with bringing in false witnesses, they couldn't discredit Jesus, Jesus. It was like they, they, they hadn't actually planned it that well. They hadn't got the witnesses to rehearse their stories. And we discover in verse 56 that one of the charges they leveled against Jesus was this threat to destroy the Jew temple. Now, in Roman-occupied Israel, to desecrate a place of worship was a capital crime. And so this they could get Jesus put to death on problem was do you remember what jesus said in john 2 regarding the temple he says to the jews leaders you will destroy this temple in three days i'll raise it back up again because he wasn't talking about the temple he was talking about his body and so they, they try and get men to stand up and present evidence regarding this statement that Jesus said, but look at what happens again. And some stood up, bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So from the get-go, this isn't going well. They've got Jesus before them, they want to put him to death, but they can't get anything to stick. And it's at this moment, the high priest stands up. Now, when, when, um, you're a minister and your argument and your sermon is weak, you're told at seminary, just shout. Weak argument, shout louder. It works. But, in this case, the high priest recognizes they're getting no, so he stands up and you can imagine his face, red with rage. He can't get anything to stick on Jesus. And so it's like he stands up and he begins bawling. And the high priest, verse 60, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And we read this. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Jesus' silence spoke volumes. He was innocent. And do you know why else he was silent? To fulfill the scripture of Isaiah 53. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth here's the high priest and he's trying to bully Jesus into incriminating himself but he, he can't do it and he's shouting and he's come on Jesus and he says nothing And then he tries again. It's really interesting what he says here next. He says, again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, Jews so revered the name of God that they would never say it. And so in place of saying God, Yahweh, they would say bless. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Now, interestingly, where did the high priest learn that Jesus said this? Because the one time... When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God, he said to his disciples, now don't tell anyone. We'll Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, told the religious leaders that, G- that he claimed to be the Christ and the Son of God. Now, if Jesus' silence spoke volumes, Jesus' answer here speaks just as loud he said I am and every Jew knew that phrase I am who I am Yahweh It's maybe the, the double play in words. He's saying, I am who was, I am who is, I am who is to come, I am God. Just to make it clear, he goes on and says, and you will see the Son of Man, Daniel 9, seated at the right hand of power, Daniel 7, coming with the clouds of heaven. Here Jesus makes it abundantly clear as he's asked this question from the high priest, you want to know who I am? I am the Christ. I am the son of God. It's really interesting because the Sanhedrin thought they were sitting in judgment over Jesus. But Jesus says, essentially, I stand in judgment over you and I will one day come in judgment over all of you. You see, Jesus isn't on trial. These men are on trial. They're 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 just providing evidence for that great day. They're just incriminating themselves. It's one of those really, really terrifying scenes where the innocent one stands in the dock. God is in the dock, and these men want to see He's guilty. He's committed blasphemy when in all reality it's them who are guilty of the sin of blasphemy. Look at what happens next verse 63 and the high priest tore his garments another melodramatic display he rips his garments and says what further witnesses do we need you have heard his blasphemy this is brilliant because not only has he now incriminated himself, he says to the Sanhedrin, what is your decision? To all the religious leaders, come on, we've got to all be in, in this. What is your decision? What is your verdict of Jesus saying that he is the son of man, seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds that I am? And they all condemned him deserving of death. And all of them incriminate themselves before the judge of the world. They condemned the innocent one, worthy of death. It's a kangaroo court. It's been a shocking trial. And just to add insult to the whole injury of it all, Verse 65, then some began to spit at him. Have you ever been spat on? It's one of the most degrading things to ever experience. He spat on him. And then they blindfolded him. They covered his face. And then they started striking them with their fists. And then they mocked him by saying, "Prophesy!" Maybe what they were saying was, come on, we're blindfolded you. Tell us our names. Show us that you're God. This is God. And they're mocking him. And then what they do next is they hand Jesus over to what is referred to here as the guards. Presumably the men who are standing at the fireside with Peter. And they begin beating him. Now, what are we to learn from this scene? We can't overlook this. This is the beginning of Jesus' physical suffering. This is the beginning of Jesus giving himself for his people. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who will pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is Jesus, as the heat has been turned up in him, acting with courage and faithfulness in his mission of love to suffer and die to rescue and redeem his people. It starts here. jesus isn't a picture of weakness here it is jesus stands here as a picture of the strength of his love and commitment to the plan of almighty god to save a people for themselves and you know the scary thing is for those men who condemned him worthy of death they will give an account to him when he comes in glory you know there are many people maybe even here tonight maybe you're here and you're you're a skeptic and you're not aware of this fact but jesus sits in judgment on you you don't sit in judgment over jesus and jesus when he says i am he means i'm the one who was the one who is and i am the one who is to come and he is coming again we confessed it when we read from the shorter catechism he is coming to judge the living and the dead and so the question that you and i really face is what is our response to jesus You know, one of the most remarkable things is, with the exception of Peter's confession in Mark 8, that Jesus is the Christ. The two most Christological statements that come from the lips of anyone in Mark's gospel come from two unbelievers involved in the execution of Jesus. The first one from the high priest that we just read here, and the second one from the Roman centurion who will stand at the foot of the cross and say, truly, this was the Son of God. One of the most terrifying things is if you're, you, you're someone who rejects Jesus, but you know that he claims to be the Christ and the Son of God. What is your verdict? This is who he said he was and his invitation is for us to come and bow the knee and honor him for who he is and for what he came to do for us. The decision is yours. What is your verdict? Let's dim the lights on Jesus. Let's turn up the lights on Peter. Verse 54. Verse. 54 we said peter had followed Jesus a distance right into the courtyard so now we move from the courtroom trial that took place in the inner chamber and now we go down to the courtyard with peter warming his hands by the fire and here's peter's trial servant girl is a judge peter is in the dock how's he going to respond Well, verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. See those two words in the Greek, I neither theoretically and experientially understand what you're talking about. This is a total denial of Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know, I don't understand what you're talking about. And it's so striking because here's Jesus and he's just confessed who he is and here's Peter and he's got an opportunity to confess who Jesus is and he denies him. He went out into the gateway so he creates further distance and the cock crowed and a servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders this man is one of them but again he denied it and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean they hear his accent they, they know where he's from they, they're, they're convinced they have saw him with Jesus before and again he denies it in fact it gets worse because here he invokes a curse on himself, and he swears, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It is complete and utter denial of Jesus. He swears. He curses by his name. I I don't know him. One of the Realities we go through as Christians is sometimes when we fall into sin, God uses different means in our lives to convict us of our sin, our, our consciences. Sometimes in providence He 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 gives us a little signal just to pierce us, to awaken us to our senses, and then the wisdom of God He chose a cock to crow twice. And it was not just that Peter heard that, it was that Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And this little signal led him to break down and weep. And by the way, he's standing with all the people around him. You know, sometimes when I, I come under conviction of sin, if I'm with people I, i don't act but if i'm lying in my bed at night if i'm on my own i'll break down and cry i'll feel it embarrassed such is his awareness of his sins that he breaks down publicly and he falls and he weeps because he realizes what he's done he has denied the savior that he once confessed so publicly and freely He was keeping him at a distance. And now that relational distance, that spiritual distance, that physical distance has only increased. And he broke down and wept. I wonder, can any of us here tonight, can can we identify with Peter's unfaithfulness? Maybe you've denied Jesus. Maybe not with your mouth. But what about your life? You know, the reason I love the the sharp contrast of this story is because we see Jesus' amazing faithfulness. And it's set against the backdrop of Peter's complete and utter denial of Jesus. You know, this morning I kind of made the joke, you know, Peter says to Mark when he's writing this gospel, don't mention the fact that I'm the disciple who chopped off the high servant's ear. Maybe Peter turned around and says, Mark, make sure you mention the whole story in full detail of what happened that night when I denied Jesus. Because I want everyone to know what grace is. Because I want everyone to know where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And the same Savior that I totally and utterly denied was the saviour who took me for breakfast after the resurrection and restored me I asked him Peter three times Simon son of bar John, do you love me do you love me do you love me this story doesn't end it ends yes here with Peter weeping but we know that the story ends in light of Jesus death and resurrection the fact that jesus's love is greater than peter's denial and so here's the word for you and i your sin might be great but his mercy and grace is far more and this passage is designed to convince us of the amazing grace of god it's interesting jesus was in trial he's he's victorious peter's on trial he fails you and i are on trial how do we do let's just examine our life this past week living for jesus keeping him at a safe distance keeping our safety and comfort here's the thing if you're a failure come to just receive his grace receive forgiveness and mercy and go forward in faith living and trusting in him obeying him and following him all your days who is this jesus he's the christ he's the son of god he's the coming judge he is the incredible saviour whose love is stronger than death and sin let's pray Jesus we, we do confess that sometimes we are ashamed to even publicly identify with you We, light our, we hide our light under a bushel. And yet we are staggered that even in heaven tonight at the right hand of your Father's throne you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You are not ashamed of us who you've bought with your blood, who you've filled with your spirit, who you've saved for all eternity and for that we praise you and we thank you. Jesus, we would ask that as we think of your final hours in this earth and the beginning of your suffering on our behalf and lead up to your death on the cross, that we would grow and deepen in our, both our understanding and above all in our gratitude and thankfulness. We stand truly in awe. We can scarce take it in that you willingly stood there and took that beating knowing that you had to be betrayed, arrested, suffer, and then die so that the plan of God, the covenant redemption, could be fulfilled. And we come this evening and we want to say thank you. Hallelujah. What a savior you are. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.